you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. That uh, final song that we sang together, Be Unto Your Name, a song about the majesty of God, the greatness of God, honor, glory, praise. This week's text and next week's text here near the close of Mark 6 are bent in the direction of that song as to Jesus, uh, the majesty, the glory of Jesus as seen primarily in actions that he takes. Um, We'll be arguing that, in fact, in both cases, uh, those of you who have been involved on uh, Sunday nights uh, in the book of Exodus, in both cases, uh, this week's paragraph and next week's paragraph, there is at least an allusion back to something that God did in the book of Exodus. And Jesus is presented to us as somehow mysteriously but clearly that God, that God. With that said, let's uh, stand together. Mark 6, verses 35 to 44. Mark 6, verses 35 to 44. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So that they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Now just pause there for a moment. Um, You may wonder, so so why some groups of hundreds and some groups of fifties? And and some scholars will try to tell you about that in one way. But there, there is a whole group that maybe does make the best sense out of it by saying, What you're supposed to picture here is that they're grouped in these two ways simultaneously. So if you picture a giant rectangle of men, 50 men deep and 100 men across, everybody involved is simultaneously in a group of 100 and a group of 50, roughly speaking, making 5,000 men. Another argument, we mentioned it uh, last week, and how big this crowd is. Well, if there's women and children involved, then it's quite a lot bigger than 5,000. But there's a whole argument from scholars that it probably may not necessarily include women and children, but only men for whatever reason, have made their way to this event. And what Matthew means when he says, not 
without women and children means there literally wasn't any there. Um, That's an argument. Nobody knows, and nobody will ever know uh, for sure between those two things. But just with that said, but the, the, the idea of 50s and 100, I think that's kind of compelling. Yes, this great rectangle of men, 100 men across, 50 men deep. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. As we go to prayer, our prayer this morning will be based on Psalm 142, which has this superscription over it contemplative prayer of David when he was in a cave, a prayer. So the psalm opens with somebody in trouble, somebody disappointed, somebody in that case, if you're thinking of Samuel hiding out from Saul in a cave. But as we'll see as we get to the end of the prayer and the end of the psalm, there's also a great deal of hope in it in the gathering of the righteous. Well, we have three kids in camp this week. Uh, and what camp is for kids is kind of a gathering with righteous people. So, they're, well, they're not all righteous. Of course not. But they're, it's an event put on by the righteous. And uh, the three that are there are Archer and Ira, Hanson and their cousin Caleb Merriman. So we'll mention them again in just a moment, but let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, when we find ourselves in trouble, may we learn from David as to what we should do and lift our voice unto you and cry out unto you. And ask you, O Lord, that you would be gracious to us. We pour out our sorrows and our complaints before you. Lord, we celebrate fatherhood on this Father's Day, but we don't imagine for a moment that every home and every father is in the most contented and advantageous position. But many would feel like they could pour out their sorrow and their complaint before you this day, and so they can. So they can. For our situations, whatever they are, dazzlingly happy or heartbreakingly sad, we tell them before you and you listen. Others, it would be their health on this day that is very much uppermost in their mind. And it's a challenge, and it's hard. And we pour out our complaints before you, reminding you where we are. For you are the one who has placed us there. Our spirits grow faint within us when we think of certain troubles in our lives And we are comforted to remind ourselves, as David says, that you know our path 
You know all about us. You know exactly where you've placed us to walk. And you know that there are challenges and snares and disappointments placed all around us. And at times we wonder whether there is any place to rest and find refuge. For there seems to be nobody looking out for our situation, including you. You seem unaware, but you're certainly not fixing it. You're not fixing our health. You're not fixing our relationships. You're not fixing our finances as we would like. You're not fixing our national politics. You're not fixing international situations. And we look to you, and we cry out unto you, And we remind ourselves in our better, more believing moments that you are still there. You are our refuge. You are our portion in the land of the living. So attend unto our cry, O Lord. When we are brought exceedingly low, rescue us from trouble, from our situations that are simply too strong for us. Bring our souls out from trouble so that we might be among those who give thanks to your name. And we pray that you would gather us among the righteous. Lord, we pray for Archer and Ira and Caleb as they have been gathered at camp with counselors and special speakers and many other believing kids, others who are searching. We pray that in that gathering of these teachers and these counselors and these special speakers, and your people serving food and providing medical assistance with volunteer nursing and all of that gathering of the righteous, that Archer and Ira and Caleb would be blessed and deepened and strengthened in their own faith in such a group of people. And Lord, we... we, be reminded that as we gather together among the righteous, the called, on this Sunday morning and all of its present imperfections, that our future is such a gathering in a new heaven and a new earth, a gathering that will never end, that will have all of our sinfulness removed, For that is sure to happen. For as David says, because you deal bountifully upon us as your people. We thank you that you do, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I don't know how many times I've borrowed my sermon title over the years from Adolf Schlatter's little devotional book, the last book that he wrote. He was a European New Testament uh, scholar, um, quite uh, evangelical uh, for the sorts of institutions that he taught in where there were very few believing professors around him in his day. And when he was 85 years old, couldn't even see anymore. He read by having his daughter read to him, uh, caring for him in his old age. He published this little, not little, it's quite a large, year-long devotional, bearing the just compelling little tile. Do we know Jesus? Do we know 
Jesus. I'm going to steal his title from both this week's sermon and next week's, because these two paragraphs, that's what really they're asking us as disciples. Do we really know and trust and live our lives in the light of the Jesus that we meet in our text for this morning? Do we really know and trust and live in the light of the Jesus that we will meet in next Sunday morning's text? Um, Jesus understood uh, people's, one of their great problems is this, they don't know who he is. They don't get him. Even those who should often don't. And most people don't even come close. That's at the heart of that little text that Joel read earlier in the, in the service from up here on the stage, John 4. 7 to 10. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Editorial comment, for Jews had no dealings with Samaria. Jesus answered her, If you knew... If you knew the gift of God, but then more importantly, as relates to our next two texts, and who it is, if you knew who it is, who is saying to you, give me a drink, it would make all the difference. If you knew who it is, Who's saying to you? And of course, she doesn't know who it is. She's about to find out, but at this stage, she hasn't a clue who it is that she's speaking with, who it is that she's just intersected with, who it is that she's dealing with. Now, in our paragraph, see, Mark tells this story to help us understand just who Jesus is, who he is. He tells us a whole story. And he just leaves the story in our lap for us to think about and ask ourselves, Who must this be if this story is true? Our paragraph for this morning records one of the few miracles that Jesus did that's recorded in all four Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a bunch of stuff in common, but very few things are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is one of them. This is one of them. This story plays a prominent role in all four Gospels. And so we might expect that there's something here that we really ought to see, uh, that the Spirit thought it worthy of repeating four times, uh, which he rarely did of incidents in Jesus' life, other than things like this and the resurrection and things like that. I state our thesis for this morning this way. We need to be clear about the power and reliability of Jesus. We need to be clear about the power and reliability of Jesus, and we'll keep in mind four aspects of what we should remember Uh, about Jesus from this little story. Uh, Number one, we need to remember how important Jesus thought 
teaching was. And you may think, well, no, there's not even anything about teaching in this passage. Ah, but there is. There is, strongly so, in fact, by implication. Notice how, again, the paragraph opens, verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desperate, a desolate place. And the hour is now late. When the hour was already late, the disciples said to him, Hey, the hour's already late. Um, Now it's in the line before that we're reminded, well, So what's been going on that the hour got so late? And remember how the previous paragraph closed. And Jesus was teaching them many things. He was teaching. And he was teaching. And he was teaching. And he was teaching. So much so that the hour was late. He began teaching them many things, end of verse 34. And when it grew late, and when it grew late, Jesus is a teacher. Sermon on the Mount, he said, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets the instruction or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Now also remember, last week in the text, he refers to, uses a phrase that he pulls out of Numbers 27. Because this group of people, these men, at least these 5,000 men, they struck him like sheep without a shepherd. Now that line you remember, is pulled out of Numbers 27. And in Numbers 27, what's going on is the great transition from Moses to Joshua. From the greatest shepherd in Old Testament Israel to his lesser counterpart, Joshua. And so it's all about this sort of shepherding by teaching. You say, well, what would make you say that? Well, remember how Joshua opens his ministry. Here's what he says to Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land. This book of the law, that is, this book of instructions will not depart from your mouth, but you'll meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything written in it, for then you won't be like sheep without a shepherd. You won't just be wandering around. You won't get canonized by your neighbors. You've got to keep this instruction before you. This book of instruction won't depart From your mouth. Jesus has the same attitude. He's a teacher. He teaches and he teaches and he teaches. And here he's been teaching all afternoon and into the evening. And now the disciples step forward to help him correct his mistake by pointing out, Whoa, time out. The hour is late. 
Enough! The hour is late! And these people are going to need to eat and get ready to spend the night, and so you better release them and send them away. Jesus thinks teaching is extremely important, so we should too. Now, of course, the the prince of the power of the air, no original ideas. He, too, is a great teacher. He, too, is a great teacher. Uh, Here's how he writes his version of Joshua 1.8 to us. These digital devices purveying to you Marxist and secularist propaganda shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall listen to them and read them day and night so that you will be deeply influenced by this propaganda. And then you will be angry and resentful and depressed and feeling oppressed And they can then play an active role in your own self-destruction. And that's where we live. Tremendously taught. We are the great meditators. Somebody constantly speaking to us. Constantly asking us to read something Constantly, constantly, constantly. And we keep those messages with us 24 hours a day so that we might be taught and retaught and retaught. So, who's teaching you? Who has shaped your view of things, your understanding of things? most fundamentally. Secondly, we need to remember that we often think we know what Jesus should do when we don't. We often think we know what Jesus should do when we don't. Verse 36, the disciples know exactly what Jesus should do. All right, Jesus, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It's clear what should happen. The disciples know exactly what to do to correct the fact that Jesus has gotten carried away once again in his teaching, gone too long, they've stepped in, whoop, whoop, hours late, Send them the way to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages to buy themselves something to eat. Now, over in John's parallel, we're told Jesus didn't actually need their help. They, they offered it. Uh, they gave it anyways. But, but he didn't need their help. Now, we'll come back to what he tells them to do in a moment. But over in the John parallel, we are told this in John 6, 6. Jesus himself knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. New Testament scholar that teaches at Baylor, Ladesia Novakovic points out that this is an emphatic little statement here. There's an extra pronoun inserted so that it's like, so Jesus himself, it's emphatic. He didn't need anybody's help. He knew what he was about to do. The miracle was planned. The miracle was planned. Didn't seem so to the disciples. And they confident that they knew exactly what to do. 
this, isn't, this doesn't by any means solve the whole thing, but this is a big piece of the solution to what we often refer to as the problem of unanswered prayer. The problem of, an, um, of unanswered prayer, where we, we ask Jesus for something, and then we don't get it. And we're upset, because very often, what we assume is, of course, this is the will of God. It would have to be. I know what Jesus ought to do in the present situation. I know, I'm sure of it. But we're actually not so sure of it. We don't know. We often don't know. Earlier this week, just in my regular reading, I was at the end of Mark, Mark 14, 36, where Jesus prays this way, very appropriate text for Father's Day to remind us. Our, 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 we, we live in a culture now that hates the concept of fatherhood. The great problem in the world is patriarchy and so forth and, and, and on and on and on, and there's nothing... You know, worse than uh, honoring uh, males um, in any way, shape, or form. That's where we live. That's that's a big piece of the uh, of the propaganda uh, floating around. And you'll just you know, if anything can be traced back, uh, the problem is patriarchy. Then you've known you've found the darkest piece of the closet. Um, but Jesus. Praise this way, Abba, Father. Hmm. Jesus advocates some form of patriarchy. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. And then he prays just like we pray and just like we ought to pray for things. Most of the things we pray for. Remove this cup from me. Take this painful thing out of my life. Heal my body. Heal this relationship. Solve this problem. There's nothing wrong with praying that way. That's how he prays. That's exactly what he does here. Take this cup from me. But then... Yet not what I will, but what you will. All things are possible for you. But I'm submitted to your plan and not assuming that every piece of my plan is your plan. Thirdly, we need to remember that Jesus commands the humanly impossible. He answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, this is said sarcastically. Um, I mean, respectfully, but sarcastically. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Oh, by the way, we don't have 200 denarii. (laughs) That's three quarters of a person's wage for a whole year. A denarii is basically what a person made for one day. If they were a working person in the first century. So this is 200 days worth of pay... And by the way, again, in John's parallel, Philip says, and Jesus, even if we had 200 denarii, we'd actually only be able to purchase like a little sampler for each person. We'd only be able to give each person possibly just a little bit. 
you give them something to eat. What an idea. But it's a command. You give them something to eat. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Now, this should be a challenge to you. If, you're, if you like to say this, and lots of Christians like to say this. Uh, we, I, I hear this said regularly, and it, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not completely, there, there's something to it that, that there's actually worth getting at, but it's, but it's certainly very much over, overplayed, right? You'll, you'll hear this, look. God would not command anything of you that you are not able to do. We just say that like it's just a truism. God never commands anything of anybody that they, they just don't, they, they, they must, if, if he commands it from you, you must at least possibly be able to do it. Otherwise, the command would not be fair and God is, if anything, fair. So there. So it's just a truism. God would never command anything from you that you are not at least potentially able to do. Except he does precisely that right here. There's no possible way they had a hope in the universe of feeding these 5,000 people by themselves out there. You give them something to eat. They can't do it. They can't do it. They're not just being lazy. They're not being skeptical. They simply can't do it. Um, And I guarantee you, none of them were saying this when he gave them the command. Okay, boys, we must be able to do it because we all know if, if if we couldn't do it, he would have never commanded it. They weren't saying that. They were saying exactly what they did say. What? We don't have that kind of money, and quite frankly, even if they did, can you imagine? They're going to run off to all these places and try to buy all this food and then haul it back to that spot. It's absurd. You give them something to eat. Jesus often commands things that he knows perfectly well that we are unable to do without his help. Just think of one from the Sermon on the Mount. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, you must be able to do that or he wouldn't have asked you to do it. Some of the Wesleyans seized on that and argued, there it is, perfectionism. Perfectionism is possible. Why? Because Jesus commanded it, and if you were not able to do it, he wouldn't have commanded it. So there you go. Built a whole movement around stuff like that. Had to really radically redefine sin to show up perfect throughout their lives, which they, they took a good shot at. But it didn't really persuade too many people, even at the time. Now, interestingly enough, of course, eschatologically, it will turn out to be true with the help of the Lord Jesus. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And someday when you live in a resurrected universe in your resurrected body, by the power of the Spirit, You will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But between now and then, that's the kind of thing that Paul has in mind, you see, when he says, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. He doesn't just mean, if you ask Jesus into your heart, you will eventually go to heaven when you die. No, he's something a lot more sophisticated than that. This rebirth process that he has started in you 
it will continue in one form or another until you find yourself in a resurrected body, in a resurrected universe. But Jesus commands what, for the moment, we certainly can't do so that we will turn and seek him. And, of course, that's what happens here because the disciples actually do feed 5,000 people with his help. Fourth and finally, we need to remember that Jesus possesses the power of God. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, Blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples before the people, and divided the two fish among them. And they ate, and all 5,000 of them are full. Now, you, I think you're supposed to think, of course, at this point, as I mentioned, of the book of Exodus. They're in a desolate place. God takes an entire nation of people out into the wilderness. There's no food and water out there to speak of, certainly not for a nation. And the disciples in those days, people of Israel, point out rather vociferously uh, that this has been a short-sighted plan and that God would have been better off just to leave them alone. In the Psalms' summary of that, in the Psalm 78 is kind of famous for summarizing that whole thing. Great big long psalm. The Exodus is in the middle of it. And let me just read the parallel piece that comes so much to mind when you're aware we are. Beginning in verse 14, Psalm 78, 14. In the daytime God led them with a cloud and at night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers, and yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. How so? Well, fine. Nice to have water. But what are we going to eat? You ever think of that, Moses? What are we going to eat? Here's how he put it to them. Here's how they put it, sarcastically. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved, and they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness Expected answer, no. This is a dumb plan. This is a dumb idea. It's not thought through. And now we're out here in a mess. God set a table in the wilderness. See, this is exactly what the disciples turn to say to Jesus in John 6, parallel to this. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? You can't set a, you can't set a table in the wilderness for 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. So that's what we got. And you say, feed them. What a ridiculous idea. And Jesus has them sit down. And the next thing you know, of course, he is... He's passing out 
an apparently unlimited supply of bread and fish from these five loaves and two fish. And the disciples are distributing this among the crowd. They are giving this to the crowd. The verb there goes imperfective, so it's just an ongoing aspect. They're they're delivering, they're coming back, they're carrying these baskets, and they're coming back, and they're carrying these baskets, and they're they're passing out food continuously to 5,000 men. And Jesus is somehow supplying that to them. Now, I'm just going to close off by using John Frame's categories for a story like this. You know, John Frame likes to uh, talk to us about when you're reading your Bible and you're thinking about uh, theological things, remember that keep you know, multiple perspectives going on in your mind at the same time. He likes, he, he loves threes. Frame loves threes. He's got threes floating all over the place. Well, here's one of his favorite threes. He's got, he said, you know, remember the normative perspective. Well, that's really, that's what this story really is. This is the normative perspective. That is, how powerful is Jesus? What can he do? If you believe this story, what's your answer to that? Well, he can do anything. He can do God-like things. As God fed the children of Israel for 40 years with manna and quail and water, Jesus can do stuff like that. He feeds 5,000 men in a desert-like place with one boy's lunch. That's what, that's what Jesus can do. Frame then says, but also keep in mind the situational perspective. And here's our situation according to the Gospels, according especially as the Gospel of Matthew Ends. This Jesus, this normative Jesus who has the power of God, here's our situation. He is with us all the days, even to the end of the age. All the days. That's literally what the text says. So we always translate it always, and that's a, that's a proper translation. But it's a little play off of a, a phrase that works its way back into the Hebrew Bible, all the days. That's how you say always, all the days, all the days. He's with us all the days. You're here this morning, you're a kid, you're 10 years old. Jesus is with you all of your childhood days. You're 15 years old and filled with angst. Jesus is with you all of your adolescent days. You're just starting a family and quite overwhelmed. Jesus is with you all of your early marriage and parenthood days. You're struggling with health concerns. Jesus is with you all of your sick and struggling days. You're growing old. Jesus is with you all of your aging days. You're dying. Jesus is with you all of your dying days. All the days, even to the end of the age. And then's where the test comes. And Frame says, he calls it the existential perspective. Do I experience my life? Do I experience my trials? Do I experience my painful losses and gigantic disappointments? As if 
and in the light of the fact that the infinitely capable God is with me in it. Am I calm like I should be? Am I continuing to pray as I ought to? Knowing, as Jesus said, all things are possible to you. That's true of Jesus, too. All things are possible for Jesus. He taught us to pray to our Father in heaven. All things are possible to our Father in heaven. Jesus is with us all the days, even to the end of the age. Do we enjoy the confidence of that perspective, of this story, New Testament outlook on God and life and us? We should. Stories designed to help us to make this our view of the world, the one that we live from, rest in, take comfort in. In the midst of all of our uncertainties and trials and challenges, which are many and oftentimes daunting. But we do it all with the infinite Jesus who is with us always, all the days, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may you enable us to take hold of the truth about you and about us, about your presence and about your capability, about your steadfast love and about your faithfulness, and enable us to rest contentedly, peacefully, confidently in you as we make our way through all of the trials of our lives so that men might see our good works and glorify you, our Father who is in heaven. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.